Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to our first ever episode of Intelligence Squared Arts and Culture. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. And I'm executive producer Hannah Kay. For this first episode, we're bringing you a debate that spans the centuries hip-hop versus Shakespeare. Tied in with the sale of a rare copy of Shakespeare's first folio at Sotheby's in London, spoken word performer George the Poet and novelist Howard Jacobson went head-to-head over which form of cultural expression best resonates now and forever. Howard Jacobson is one of the most brilliant and funniest performers we've ever had on our stage. And this was the first time that we'd had George the Poet and he arrived looking unbelievably handsome in a shining white outfit, as if he'd just stepped off a mountaintop. And he was utterly brilliant too. This event was recorded on the 9th of June, 2022, at Sotheby's in London. Hello, and welcome to this debate, which is part of Sotheby's Platinum Jubilee Arts Festival. My name is Shahid Abari. I'm a professor at the University of the Arts London, a BBC Arts presenter, and also I'm chairing today's debate on hip-hop versus Shakespeare. This is a debate that is going to span the centuries, obviously. We're asking a lot of our two debaters. It's not so much a question as a challenge that we're issuing here. Do new genres with mass appeal, like hip-hop and slam poetry, speak more to society than canonical historical texts? And can we assume that classic art forms will always be universal? Or 
Is it time to shake things up and put forward some new classics? Does Shakespeare still matter 400 years on? Is hip-hop just a young pretender to the throne? Or is longevity actually not the best measure of artistic merit? These are just some of the questions that we might explore today, uh, led by our advocates in what is sure to be a lively conversation. So let's meet them. Representing the case for hip hop, we have George the Poet. In the summer of um, 2018, he opened the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle with his poem, The Beauty of Union. He's a London-born spoken word performer. In 2020, I'm sure lots of you have heard his podcast. Have you heard George's podcast? It became the first podcast outside of the US to win a prestigious Peabody Award and it also won five gold British podcast awards. And George has recently, if that's not enough <laughs> of the riches, George has recently embarked on a PhD uh, researching how black music acts as a catalyst for social and economic progress. Welcome George the Poet. And for Shakespeare, we have Howard Jacobson. Uh, I'm sure lots of you know, Howard is one of our most esteemed novelists and journalists. He's written 16 novels and several works of nonfiction, including In the Land of Oz and Roots Schmoots, which was made into a critically acclaimed Channel 4 series. In 2016, he published Shylock Is My Name, a contemporary adaptation of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. He won the Man Booker Prize for The Finkler Question in 2010 and his novel Jay was shortlisted for the award in 2014. Welcome, Howard. Okay, um, before we hear the cases that you're both going to put forward, I think it'll be useful to get a sense of why you're representing the different sides of the argument that you are. H Howard, is Shakespeare a passion and when did you first encounter his work? My auntie bought me a record of Olivier as Hamlet, which was a re an LP record based on the film. Mm -hmm. I must have been eight or nine. And I fell in love with, I suppose, Olivier as well as the Shakespeare. What I most loved was the graveyard scene. And I can still hear Olivier whispering through that misty graveyard to the gravedigger, how long will a man lie the earth ere he wrought? And I thought, that's fantastic. And everybody I met, I would then, my grown-ups, my uncles and aunties, I'd say, how long will a man lie the earth he rot? <laughs> my parents got very worried about me. They thought this was... I imagine. <laughs> You've come dressed as Hamlet in Sable and Weeds as well. I imagine you as a kind of... Is it Hamlet the figure you identify with? I, I identify totally with Hamlet. Yeah. In fact, I don't have the right shirt on for years because Olivier wore what I used to call a Hamlet shirt. Right. Nobody else but I knew what a Hamlet shirt was. And in the end, my dear wife couldn't bear to hear me come out, to see me come out of gent shop after gent shop set. No, no Hamlet shirt there. <laughs> no Hamlet shirt in M&S, no Hamlet shirt. <laughs> so she got one made for me. Oh, really? And for a while I had, it kind of hangs off like that. And it's quite piratical and it shows a lot of chest. It's not suitable for a man my age, but it, <laughs> but it looked okay a few years ago. And I wore it everywhere until it wore out. <laughs> and I'm now without, but if, if you'd have seen me in that Hamlet show. Oh. Uh, your wife is verifying this. And I think it would have been eminently suitable for this debate. But nonetheless, thank you for your introduction to Shakespeare. George, what about hip hop? When did you, when did you first recognize hip hop as a, a meaningful art form for you? I was around the same age as um, Howard was. I was around eight years old. And I first noticed this song by Nas and Lauren Hill. It was called If I Rule the World. It's just the two of them dreaming aloud. But the way 
they were both able to weave in elements of history and, you know, harsh realities of our environment. I wasn't that versant in social struggle. I didn't really have the language to put these things together, but I just sensed that something about this was important. And the older I get, the more I'm able to revisit that song and just think to myself, that kid had good taste. <laughs> yeah. Because how, how, Evidently. how did you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I sense there's something universal and something um, transcendental about it. When you mentioned that song, I could immediately hear the li I could hear them singing it. Yeah. Which is something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah very memorable. And, but did you know it wasn't just music for you? It was it was a serious art form. Yeah, yeah, very much. So what, what, what ended up happening across a lot of urban black communities is that hip hop developed as, as praxis. It's how we performed what we believed and, and, and what we viewed about the world. So uh, I was part of a generation of young black men that just grew up rapping for no particular reason. It's just what we did to reflect our experiences back to process and to build new, new, new social networks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that is beautiful, thank you. Let's get stuck into our business for the evening. Hip-hop versus Shakespeare. George the Poet, I call on you first to make the case for hip-hop. Thank you. Thank you. Hip-hop versus Shakespeare is a false equivalence. You can't really compare the two. Shakespeare was a man whose work changed the course of English literature, brought new language to the world, and enriched Western ideas about human nature. He was a genius. And hip-hop has a few of those. But I'm not going to give myself the impossible task of denying Shakespeare's influence. That would be a waste of time. Because time is actually Shakespeare's secret weapon. That man has had 400 years to make himself understood. Hip-hop's only had 50. So technically, the closest we can get to a fair comparison is to limit Shakespeare's timeline to the first 50 years of his impact, bringing us to the early 1600s, when he was popular, but not the undisputed all-time great that he would later become. Still, limiting Shakespeare's work to a 50-year window is impossible because his presence is too strong. My point is simply that Sometimes we only see things in hindsight. Like Shakespeare in the early 1600s, hip hop is popular today, but the true significance of this culture will be a lot clearer in 400 years time. So I feel no pressure to uplift one by downplaying the other, because hip hop versus Shakespeare is a false equivalence. You can't really compare the two. But if you insist, <laughs> let's start with the elephant in the room. No one understands Shakespeare <laughs> without training. Younger generations who enter this world with no bias are force-fed Shakespeare in school. And instead of a country full of English graduates clambering over each other for a career in literature, we have a different picture. The world of theater, and Shakespeare in particular, is perpetually elitist, non-diverse, and insular. 
In 2022, you have to be so immersed in the English academic or dramatic scene to get anything out of his work. And that's not everyone's reality. For millions of young people, Shakespearean school means boredom, frustration, cultural alienation, and sometimes feelings of inferiority. While their obsession with hip hop is completely voluntary. It's not just young people. The majority of adults have no clue what Shakespeare's saying. This isn't an indictment of the man's work, but if we are gonna make the case of this imperfect comparison between hip hop and Shakespeare, we should think about the role of both in day-to-day -day life. Our society is characterized by increasing inequality, job insecurity, and a rising cost of living. Who's got time to learn Shakespeare? Notice I said learn, not read or watch. Shakespeare's work has to be studied in order to be celebrated. It has to be decoded before it can be digested. Hip hop avoids this problem for a few reasons. It uses modern language, it deals with life in real time, and it is musical. These three factors make up hip hop's superpower, which can best be expressed like this. Before you understand it, you feel it. See the difference? To get into hip hop, we're not sat in a room and dictated to. We don't have to spend hundred pound plus on a theater ticket. We just have to follow the curiosity that the music provokes. Music which occurs in our home environment. Music which can be overheard and shared easily. Some would have you believe that hip hop's attractiveness is in its shock value, its obsession with sex and violence. I trust I'm talking to an audience that understands these as thematic similarities to Shakespeare's work, not differences. Both artistic traditions reflect raw human experience with insanely skillful usage of words, rhyme, and emotion. For this reason, I won't compare the poetry of Shakespeare and hip hop. Poetry is subjective, and as the popularity of both traditions suggests, the proof is in the pudding. My point here is about accessibility. People love hip hop without pretext, without being induced into circles that can explain it. And if we reject the racist idea that the quality of its poetry or its insights are inferior to that of Shakespeare, then we have to be honest with ourselves. Hip hop does more to illuminate the mysteries of life in the lives of more audiences than Shakespeare. His prominence outside of the English-speaking world proves this. Hip-hop didn't need 400 years of bourgeois reproduction to find a place in the hearts of people who don't have an English degree. It just connected. My second contention is that Shakespeare's well-deserved prominence in our lives owes a lot to the elevated platform of imperialist privilege that the vast majority of this world's undiscovered talent don't have. It's not just that Shakespeare benefited from the global domination of European imperialism and that the wealth, prestige, and productivity of Britain serve the dual function of promoting the country's own genius while ignoring the equivalent genius of other cultures. No, that's the international picture. Let's focus on the domestic scene. If there was a storyteller as talented as Shakespeare among the English peasantry, 
the world might never know. Shakespeare's dad was a successful businessman and politician, while his mother came from a wealthy land-owning family. The guy started off all right. During his lifetime, things got better, and eventually, his company was literally backed by the king. Now, I wouldn't suggest that this privilege undermines his work, but I will highlight the difference in hip-hop's origin story. Hip-hop is the rose that grew from the concrete of slavery. In that concrete, the seeds of African identity were buried, not planted, buried. Nothing was supposed to grow there other than white power. The rocket fuel behind this power was stolen African labor. During the time in which Shakespeare's work was gaining international acclaim across the Western world, the African story was being torn up and rewritten by Europeans. Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, Portugal, the Netherlands, the US, they all co-designed a world in which raw materials from overseas were converted into manufactured goods for their home countries and the monopolized markets they instituted elsewhere. And even though these European powers were in fierce competition, they all agreed on one thing, the dark-skinned world wouldn't get a say. Their plan was for dark-skinned people to work for them, first through slavery, then colonialism, then puppet governments and unfair trade. Throughout the 20th century, leaders across the impoverished world fought to change the situation, pushing for domestic and international reform. These leaders were routinely murdered, imprisoned, exiled, or drowned in debt, and African-Americans were front and center of these struggles. During this time, they suffered higher levels of unemployment, poverty, and family disintegration. The civil rights leaders of the 1960s argued that legally binding structural change was needed in order to combat racial inequality. But by the 1970s, white America was tired of this. Neoconservative backlash consisted of Americans rejecting claims of institutional unfairness and insisting that some people just need to work harder. Internationally, calls for global justice from the so-called third world were met with a British response known as Thatcherism. Margaret Thatcher spearheaded the philosophy which rejected the idea that the world economy was unfair. She blocked debt forgiveness and measures to control the influence of private business on global politics, insisting that irresponsible spending and cultural backwardness were the real drivers of third world debt, not hundreds of years of slavery and forced labor. Shortly after Thatcher's election, Reagan's ascension to the US presidency reinforced her philosophy, hailing the advent of what is now known as the neoliberal era. And it is against this backdrop that hip hop was born. An African-American storytelling tradition embedded so deep in the African psyche that it survived a centuries long Holocaust a tradition so powerful that the CIA-backed proliferation of crack cocaine throughout the black community couldn't stop it. A tradition so undeniable that the historically biased white-owned global media couldn't even block it out. The president, the vice president, the FBI, the rank-and-file police force, thousands of parents across the USA all came out in opposition to hip-hop. And guess who won? It's not that Shakespeare's privilege devalues his brilliance. It's that hip-hop's significance derives from its resilience.
Shakespeare's works were funded by the monarchy and distributed by the establishment of an emerging global superpower. Hip hop came from the street culture of an oppressed, displaced people. One came from the top down, the other from the ground up. So to round off my earlier point, it's not just Shakespeare's work that needs to be studied before it's fully understood. Analyzing the historical context of hip hop is essential to assessing its role in our world. For the last hundred years, African-Americans have been forced to watch in disbelief as the US presided over trials for war criminals and billions in reparations, welcomed newly independent countries to the United Nations and berated South Africa for its racist apartheid system, all while practicing segregation and denying self-determination to its own black population. By the time hip hop was born, the US still hadn't even apologized for slavery. And to this day, despite reparations being awarded to the indigenous peoples of America, Canada, New Zealand, the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, Japanese American survivors of internment camps, not a single penny has been paid to the descendants of enslaved or colonized Africans for their instrumental role in propelling Western capital accumulation. Given an academic world so starved of diversity that critical race theory can be dismissed by the British government as a fringe moral panic, how the hell could the lived experience of inequality ever have seen the light of day if it wasn't for hip hop? Shakespeare couldn't predict the 1992 LA riots like a 20-year-old Tupac Shakur did on his debut album one year prior. Shakespeare couldn't console the billions of oppressed people across the modern world with a utopian fantasy like Nas and Lauren Hill's If I Ruled the World. Shakespeare hasn't provided the blueprint that has enabled impoverished communities to establish their own narrative and even stylize their pain for better or for worse. Only hip hop has been able to do this. Why? Because hip hop is alive. Shakespeare's dead. This doesn't mean that Shakespeare is redundant or forgotten. It's just that he's no longer able to respond to what's happening now. Earlier, I attributed hip hop's superpower to its use of modern language. I wanna go further. Hip hop doesn't just use modern language, it invents it. Haters, hustlers, and OGs are just a few of the archetypes in every society that hip hop has given name to. Every generation reinvents speech in order to interpret their world in new ways. Shakespeare did this too, as I'm sure you all know. African-American youth have popularized their own linguistic creativity through hip hop culture. Now multiply that creativity by the countless offshoots of US hip hop that have popped up around the world in the last 40 years. Over here in Britain, UK hip hop has been the most streamed genre for a number of years now. This has promoted black British culture on an unprecedented scale, returning dividends to the UK in the form of industry earnings, international awards and recognition, not dissimilar to the legacy of Shakespeare. But remember, I'm the one saying hip hop versus Shakespeare is a false equivalence. You can't really compare the two. But if you insist, <laughs> Hip-hop wins, it's not even close. Thank you.
Thank you, George. If hip-hop be the food of love, stay on, right? There you go. Um, we're going to, to, to respond to that in a moment, but I'm going to encourage Howard to take to the stage, first of all, to advocate for Shakespeare. Thank you. How long will a man lie the earth ere he rot? Friends, royalists, republicans, professor. Some years ago, I happened on a bad review of one of my novels on Goodreads, the Amazon-owned website on which people boast of having failed to understand a book. <laughs> the reviewer gave my book minus 17 stars. 17 because that was the number of words in the first chapter he didn't know. He mentioned in passing that he'd only ever given one writer more minor stars, and that was Shakespeare, whose play Troilus and Cressida contained 60 references to people he'd never heard of. 62 if you include Troilus and Cressida themselves. Summing up, he said that Shakespeare and I were equals in irrelevance, though Shakespeare had more excuse because he'd been dead longer. Since there can be no doubt that George the poet respects William the poet, and I, as a respecter of poets, respect them both, there must be another motion concealed in the one we are ostensibly debating. What we are really discussing is the relevance of literature of another age that isn't about now, and isn't about us. A proposition which for me shelters three gross fallacies. One, that contemporaneity is merely an accident of birth, so that even a bad writer of today will tell us more about who we are than a good writer of yesterday. Two, that we bring the truth about ourselves to literature rather than go to literature to find it. And three, that our identity determines the limits of our curiosity. Relevance was a 60s buzzword calculated to privilege, another 60s buzzword, people designated educational have-nots, which would have been laudable had it not done the very opposite. Tell an impoverished working man with few words that a play about a pampered prince with an extensive vocabulary cannot possibly appeal to him and you not only profoundly insult the intellectual capabilities and sympathies of the working man, you disinherit him. I use the word disinherit rather than deny, because literature is everybody's birthright. And to promote the idea of a work's inaccessibility because it's old, because it's difficult, or because we are not its subject, is theft. Every time we back away from a work of art in which we don't see a reflection of ourselves as we think we are, we lose sight of who else we might be. Art's job is not to be relevant to us. It is our job to make ourselves relevant to it. Art doesn't leap from the page or from the wall into our arms. As with any partner to a relationship, it asks for reciprocity. And as often as not, we'll answer it to coax the subtleties out of a Shakespeare sonnet, or leave the theatre feeling you have finally understood what previously baffled you is one of life's supreme joys, whoever you are. As for Shakespeare himself, yes, he is still studied, though in protracted and protected form. 
A student daughter of a friend begged me recently not to spoil King Lear for her by telling her how it ended. One day she might get round to reading the fifth act herself. But I thought you'd been studying the play all term, I said. Yes, she told me, but not the fifth act. We don't go as far as fifth acts at my uni. When I asked why, she gave me two reasons. A, five act plays take too long to read. B, fifth acts are often too upsetting. But acts two and three and four of King Lear are upsetting, I said. Yes, she said, which is why we don't read them either. <laughs> Forgive me, I taught in universities once and still idealize them, despite their no longer being palaces of disinterested study. Where I asked, here is how I would address students of English literature on the first day of term. Welcome, everyone. This is a place of learning, not a convalescent home. Much of what you are about to read has lots of words, will take time, and some of it, I hope, will upset, alarm, and discomfort you, causing you to question what you believe and who you think you are. For the time being, try not believing anything or being anyone. You're here to study literature, not yourself. If that's un unacceptable to you, switch courses now. Media studies might suit you better. <laughs> Ask me what explains Shakespeare's continuing preeminence, despite the efforts of the relevance revolutionaries, and my answer is his modernity. Read Shakespeare's contemporaries, and not one of them feels our contemporary in the way he does where even Ben Jonson's and Christopher Marlowe's characters can seem like figures from classical comedy or the medieval morality play, Shakespeare's stand at a moment of psychological transition. They are weary, skeptical, doubtful, heroes out of time, and speak a language that is at once introspective and immediate, educated and yet colloquial. So much so that even today, 400 years later, we think their thoughts and speak their language without knowing it. In a once famous article, the once famous critic Bernard Levin showed how much contemporary speech is lifted straight from Shakespeare. This is Bernard Levin. If you have ever refused to budge an inch or suffered from green-eyed jealousy, if you have played fast and loose, if you have been tongue-tied, a tower of strength, hoodwinked or in a pickle, if you have knitted your brows, made a virtue of necessity, insisted on fair play, slept not a wink, stood on ceremony, danced attendance, laughed yourself into stitches, you are quoting Shakespeare. Such quotations are more than droll decorations to our speech. They go to the very soul of us, catch our predicaments and absurdities with the eye of a painter as well as the ear of a poet. And with such vividness, you would think not a day has gone by since such a one danced attendance on such a one who laughed herself into stitches. Shakespeare was not of an age, but of all time, Ben Jonson wrote. He looked so hard and so expansively at the particular that he breathed a sort of perpetuity into it. Until Shakespeare, only God had been able to do that. But he also found the particular where others saw only the type. Take Shylock, who is the victim of a mouldering, superstitious ignorance, could in a lesser writer's hands have seen mouldering himself, a medieval Jewish moneylender with a hard heart. 
Shakespeare thwarts prejudice as only a poet can, not by speaking up for Shylock's human rights, but by rendering the raw man the prejudiced cannot see. Thou torturest me, he cries, when he is told that his daughter has stolen the ring his wife gave him and sold it to buy a pet monkey. It was my turquoise. I had it of Leia when I was a bachelor. I would have not have given it for a wilderness of monkeys. Ask the impoverished working man what he has in common with the rich Phoenician Jew, and the answer is a human heart. As for that wilderness of monkeys, it denotes both Shylock's private desolation and the wasteland of brute unenlightenment to which Jew-hating has reduced so-called sophisticated Venice. Again and again, Shakespeare's plays remind us of the thin partition that divides savagery and civilization. We stand on the edge, never entirely safe from falling back into chaos. Shakespeare became the master of the soliloquy because he needed soliloquies to haul characters out of their barely individuated pasts into a self-acquaintance you'd think possible only after years of therapy. Hamlet stands out from most of Shakespeare's other heroes in that he is, if anything, too modern. Oh, what he'd give to be the unreflective soldier Fortinbras who finds quarrel in a straw while he who has reason to act cannot but you can't be unreflective just because you want to be. Yes, Hamlet spills blood in the end, but spilling blood proves messy for a modern man who finds it hard to go backward into antique action and even harder to go backward into antique thought. Macbeth's moral trajectory is the very obverse of Hamlet's. He is a thing of blood when we first see him, having just come from the battlefield where he is reported to have unseemed an adversary from the nave to the chops and fixed his head upon the battlements. Unseemed. Isn't that a marvellous, blood-curdling and yet witty word, suggestive of the body being a suit of clothes and the person who severs it with his sword a sort of demented tailor? Worthy gentleman, declares the far too trusting king when news of Macbeth's exploits reach him. Worthy gentleman. If Macbeth's actions are those of a worthy gentleman, wherein lies worth and what's a gentleman? If hip hop deploys violent lyrics to put masculinity to the test, and if it doesn't, it should, Macbeth got there first. I dare do all that may become a man, he tells his wife when he returns from the battlefield. But he's planning to kill the king. And what manner of man is it that will kill a guest in his own house? As he contemplates what he must do, another self, a self who is no longer just a killing machine, but an agonised moral being, takes almost hallucinatory shape before his eyes. In the conversations he begins to have with this unfamiliar being, we hear the first heartbeats of conscience, remorse discovering the words and images it needs to concretize compunction, as though catching itself in the act of giving birth to humanity. The language I accept is ornate and knotted. See how, in a prefiguring of the imagery of Baroque art, Macbeth conceives the metaphysical pity that murdering the king will unloose. Pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, that tears shall drown the wind 
Yes, that's dense, but not so impenetrable that we can't see what's germinating inside Macbeth's head. He is not an abstruse philosopher. He thinks in images as well as words. He sees wrongdoing in pictures. Never mind that we don't understand every phrase. He doesn't understand himself. This is a man grappling with thoughts half-formed, stirrings of moral dread, promptings of a soul which until recently Macbeth did not even know he had. How could he, in that case, speak a language that isn't groping and half-formed? Before our eyes, he pulls out of himself the very constituents of humanity. To deny the relevance of this to our lived experience today is to admit our lived experience is a rather poor affair. And that's the reason we go to Shakespeare, to make it richer. Does that mean I've got another 15 minutes? Two minutes. Two minutes? Time. Oh, well, that's a shame. I'll tell you what I was going to say. I've got another 10 minutes, but that's no good. What I was going to say was that the part of hip-hop I most like is rap. I'm not an expert and know nothing of it, but I once went to Trinidad and saw something called Extempo War, in which poets and musicians extemporised abuse. They abused one another. It was fantastic. It was the most thrilling thing. Abusing someone else is an exciting thing, and that's part of the excitement of hip-hop. And Shakespeare could do it. Shakespeare was a rapper. People abuse one another in Shakespeare. Just let me give you one quick reminder of it. The Earl of Kent in King Lear, this is uh, talking to Oswald. You're a knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted stocking knave, a lily-livered, action-taking knave, a horse-and-glass-gazing, super-serviceable, finical rogue, and art nothing but a beggar, a coward, a panda, and the son and heir of a mongrel bitch. <laughs> Oh, so now we like Shakespeare, what is... <laughs> <laughs> well, in contradiction to the applause, the point I'm trying to make is Shakespeare was very good. He was a very good rapper. He would have made a very good rapper, but he's better when he's writing tragedy. That insult is just a little bit dated. It's comic, and comedy dates in the way that tragedy doesn't, as we know, and when we watch a sitcom on television, which we thought hilarious last year, and look at it now and think, why on earth did we like a moment of that? It dates. So what I finish with is this thought. Just give me two minutes. <laughs> words, words, words. Hamlet, right? Hamlet is right. Words, words, words. Comedy dates, as we know. So hip-hop's popularity today, because it too might date, is no guarantee it will be popular 400 years from now. Who knows? Maybe George the Poet will be taught in every school. Or maybe some people will no longer find his work relevant to their experience, while others will be so impressed that, as with Shakespeare, they don't believe he could have written it all himself. Hmm. Maybe they'll think Salman Rushdie was the real author. Or Ed Sheeran. <laughs> or me. George, I raise an imaginary glass to your longevity. <laughs> but this is all speculation. All we can say with any certainty is that hip-hop might live on whereas we know, without a doubt, that Shakespeare does. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How 
how exhilarating. Shall we get gloves off, rapiers out? Let me try to pick up some of your points, George. Is it really the case that nobody understands Shakespeare and everybody understands hip-hop? I profess to being someone who sometimes finds hip-hop illegible. Yeah. So I hope I took... Well, clearly I didn't take enough care, but I don't believe that everyone understands hip-hop. I think there's a line in there where I say hip-hop's hip -hop not universally understood. Maybe I edited that out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't take that hip-hop is universally understood. And obviously I'm, I'm being um, hyperbolic by saying no one understands Shakespeare. But what you do find, I think what is unequivocally true, is that hip-hop can land in your life in a way that is a lot more accessible. Whenever you hear Shakespeare, it takes a minute to be able to process what was said and learn the full context of what was said. Hip-hop being contemporaneous just doesn't yeah. have that challenge. And um, one of the points that Howard was just making was about Shakespeare's particular gift for the particular as well as the type. So when you say haters, hustlers and OGs of, of rap, mm. Iago, Trinculo, Full stuff. Full stuff is the OG OG, right? Mm -hmm. Can we really argue that Shakespeare isn't equal to hip hop in those characterizations? So this is what I didn't want to do, and which is why I, I made myself clear at the beginning. I just don't think it's a like for like comparison. As I said, I wouldn't put myself to the task of trying to downplay Shakespeare's genius. That's a fool's errand. <laughs> and um, my argument is simply that hip hop is is hip hop is is the now. So there's something that um, Howard said, which I really want to reflect on for a bit. Howard's, when, in talking about your years teaching, you mentioned how you, you, you start off with the premise that the study is not about you, and if you're looking for something about you, you've got to go elsewhere. But Shakespeare's about someone, right? It's not just nothing, it's not just a blank sheet of paper. And a lot of the project of hip hop and a lot of black culture is the project of restoring missing documents. So we have these methods of trying to piece together our story. And because it is the current way that we do this, as I said earlier, it's our praxis, it's our lived doctrine, it is more relevant to us. Howard's favorite word is more relevant to us than um, Shakespeare currently is. Well, should we pick that up, Howard? My least favorite word. <laughs> you, I mean, you use the word contemporaneity and I mean, is relevance just a matter of punctuality, an accident of birth, or...? Well, the whole point of my, of my um, Macbeth analysis is, look, what could be more important to us than... There is nothing more important to us than our humanity. It's with our humanity that we, that we seek to understand all those terribly important things that you say we, we must understand. But we have to have our humanity to do it. If we are less than human, we won't make as good a job of it. And to see someone like Macbeth finding humanity, to see Shakespeare trying to find a language to describe humanity, is to be eased into it ourselves. We come away from that. I'm not saying the next day we come away and we're nicer people. But imaginatively, what it is to be a human being, what it is to be civilised, what it is to be modern, because that for Shakespeare is very important. To be modern is to be civilised. To be modern is to put back all that other stuff the jealousy, the rivalry, the vengeance, the envy, the prejudice. That's what made us ancient. And he's, when I say he's a modern, I mean that, that he's wanting to take us out of all that into a new world. Now, what he, that, that new world that he takes us into, 
that Hamlet has found too much of to his cost, but the Macbeth is striving towards, that's us, isn't it? Why would we not want that? Why would we ever... And I know George thinks this, and I know George isn't saying uh, that's less important than something else. But what I'm saying is it can't, it can't be replaced. Um, there's nothing else that, you can, that pushes it out of the way. There's nothing else more important than our humanity. It's where we start. And the most mu why Shakespeare is alive today, and none of his contemporaries are, is none of them do that. They're very good, Johnson's very funny, Marlowe's very alive, but Shakespeare was different. Why is Shakespeare different? It can't only be privilege. It can't only be the privileged world that he was, that rescued him and found him because they didn't do it quite so well with anybody else. So there was something very particular that he had and they could do. And that I believe is how he speaks to us. He civilizes us. And in the act of reading, he civilizes us. And I think if you're a teacher, your job, your job with your students, whether they're school kids or university pupils, is to make them see that and not allow them to think that their job is to, but it's not about me, sir. It is about you, actually. It is about you because you're human. It might not be about your class. It might not be about your gender. And it might not be about whatever the world that you're living in at the moment describes as your identity. But believe you me, your identity is, is based on nothing so much as it's based on humanity. You've both talked about time, the time it takes to, to understand Shakespeare or, or, or live with Shakespeare, but also the time, the 400 years, as opposed to the 50 years, which Shakespeare has held the stage, as it were. Let me ask you, Howard, about, I think, the very compelling point that George made about hip-hop's resilience, this formidable case, actually, for an art form to, to, to survive all forms of social and cultural political oppression, and how, that, how, do we, how does that sit next to the, the cultural and social structures of privilege that have enabled Shakespeare's canonical transmission? George is pointing to something remarkable, the, the formidable resilience of hip-hop. Yes, but in the, as George has said, then, you can't compare the two. Uh, <laughs> hip-hop is a movement. <laughs> Yeah. It, right. is a, it, it is a movement, and to, to actually compare them, we'd have to say, well, it's not Shakespeare, it's drama, yeah. it's Elizabethan drama, yeah. it's literature, as opposed to... And, and the, the point of using hip-hop here is it's a popular movement. It's something that's reaching people, young people in particular, but on, not only, with a degree of immediacy that literature now for all sorts of reasons, doesn't quite have. Mm. My argument would be get the literature back. Not to replace hip-hop, but don't let people lose that literature because they think it's difficult. It's not all that difficult. It yields wonderful rewards if you, if you give yourself the time and the patience. Mm. And just stop. And when I say it's not about you, and George said, well, it's about something, it is about something. Shakespeare is about something. Mm. But it's not about the accidental you. So when I hear people saying, I read there was an article in The Guardian only the other day, uh, where, is the, where is the literature that tells me about me at school? Let's change the curriculum. I went through school and I was a working class Jewish boy and I never read a book about a working class Jewish boy and it never occurred to me that I needed to. Well, and I didn't even read books about boys, I read books about girls. When I was 12 I was Jane Eyre, when I was 13 it was Elizabeth Bennet, when I was 14 I was Dorothea Brooke. I was, for the whole of my adolescent years, to all intents and purposes, a girl, except I wasn't because those girls weren't only girls, because those girls were written by writers of genius who made those girls more than girls. This idea that literature only counts for you if it's about you is so destructive. Let me invite George to respond to that. 
Yeah, um, I, I really don't disagree <laughs> with, with what you're saying. It's just, it's just the framing of what hip-hop is and how it just spoke to this. We're, when we talk about hip-hop, we're not just talking literature, we're not just talking entertainment. We're talking the necessitated response to missing documents and missing history yes. okay. um, in a case of intense, um, not just oppression, but obscured oppression. Uh, this was hip-hop emerged at a time where the media was still really owned and controlled by a very small uh, group of people. There wasn't the opportunity that there is today for the day-to-day -day person to become a broadcaster, to respond to news points. So when Ronald Reagan was talking about welfare queens and um, you know, bad guys in the ghetto, the black community of America was not able to respond en masse. Hip-hop became that response. So um, it just goes back to my earlier point about this thing not just being, and I'm not implying that Howard is saying this about hip-hop, but just to clarify, um, this is not just about, I wanna see me, I wanna hear about me, 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 me. It's about uh, restoring the missing parts of, a, of the global story of humanity. Yes, but that story, and some parts of that story are difficult. Um, throughout its history, hip-hop artists have been sometimes seen to encourage violence, misogyny, homophobia. How, how do you contend with that image problem? Well, that's what, it goes back to one of the last comments I made about hip-hop. It's alive. So, like, it, like any form of life, we don't look to it to be perfect. But by analysing it seriously and trying to understand all of these messy parts of hip-hop, um, we can reveal, you know, very necessary truths about our, our current way of life. I don't feel like it is the responsibility of any advocate of hip-hop, any supporter or any fan, to uh, apologize for or to explain some of its problematic features. I think it's our duty to be honest about it and to pull that thread. What does it indicate about our broader condition? Well, Shakespeare doesn't escape those accusations either. Misogyny, racism, anti-Semitism. How do we contend with that, Howard? Uh, I don't find any of those things in Shakespeare. I don't find racism, certainly don't find anti-Semitism. People say, people say the Merchant of Venice is an anti-Semitic play. It isn't. It's about anti-Semites. That's so important that we make that difference. There are racists, there are anti-Semites, there there's every kind of swine in Shakespeare. Every kind of piece of human filth is in Shakespeare. All human life is there at its worst. That doesn't mean he is. Mm. But can I, can I just ask George yeah. one thing? Does it worry you? I mean, I absolutely take the point. I mean, it's, it, you couldn't make it more vividly about what it is, this, this, this looking for these missing pieces, this understanding, this thwarted and distorted history. Yes, absolutely. I don't feel I've got anything to do with that when I'm thinking about Shakespeare. It's as if I'm the, the, the two completely disparate subjects. But does it bother you that the absorption yeah. that the young, the, the young people that hip-hop appeals to um, that their absorption is so intense and so great that they miss out on some of these other things, that they are encouraged to think this is our language, whereas the language of some of these people like Shakespeare, some of these writers like Shakespeare, who've been privileged, if you like, I think that's a naughty one. I'm not sure I agree with that, but let's buy it. Don't you worry that that argument stops them, that they're losing something? 
not the thing that you say, they're finding the thing, they're in the process of finding what you say they're looking for. But that's not the only thing that we hear. Look, we're not only here looking for our past. I yeah. could read this thing exactly the same into 500 years of English literature. My subject, how do Jews fare in that? Mm. Appallingly, appallingly. There are, and sometimes I'll read Jewish books and I'll feel, well, that's giving, that's giving something back. And yes, what a relief it was when I first read Philip Roth. What a relief it was when I first read Saul Bellow. It was fantastic. But it didn't stop me feeling that those other things were still alive and important to me. These things, mm. these things can, can run along adjoining lines. Yeah, yeah. I'm apprehensive about um, locking off parts of history and parts of literature and parts of culture and saying, that's not mine or that's the enemy. I don't want to engage with it, even if I do perceive it as um, offensive or ant antithetical to my worldview. My, my uh, maybe academic curiosity or my human curiosity human. will drive me to um, try and embrace and try and um, interrogate some of these other challenging worldviews. I do think people are trying to say that the general record, the general, I, I referred earlier to the attitude of this government towards critical race theory. Um, I, I read an article in The Guardian a while ago that described critical race theory as, I think, a marginal, a relatively marginal um, uh, uh, academic current in this country. But for some of us, critical race theory is just one example. But there are parts of the public conversation and the way that we um, perceive ourselves that, are, um, that get no respect on a real academic level, on a societal level. So I think there are, there's a growing movement of people saying, Enough is enough. We need to just reframe this whole thing. Stop trying to divert the conversation to what some people box into the term identity politics. Stop trying to talk to me about these so-called cultural wars. I'm trying to talk about what a lot of these young people are interested in, the global distribution of um, power and wealth. But isn't Shakespeare your ally? Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying he's not. I know. Yeah. But isn't it important that you show them that Shakespeare is their ally? Not no, just, I mean, there are simple ways, me, like no. give them The Tempest. The yeah. Tempest is an anti-colonial play. The yeah. Tempest is a very, very early imagination of but, what... But, but what you've got to recognise here is, in the time that we're spending digging into the works of Shakespeare, we are not looking at all of the African literature that we haven't... Um, ever seen in the British uh, education system or all of the black British literature that we've never seen in the um, British education system. So my, my interpretation of what a lot of these young people are saying is not that Shakespeare is the enemy or Shakespeare is the problem. It's just the imbalance, the historical, deeply psychologically entrenched imbalance. But you're implying that he's irrelevant. He isn't, he's irrelevant so we can let him no, go. But, but, I was but, but, saying, but, but, relevance, to... but relevance is relative, though. I, I guess that's the crux well, of what i Well, of course it is, but my point is, this is where I'm coming from, mm. he's relevant to you whatever intellectual journey you are on, and what you're describing is an intellectual journey. Yeah. And the kids who are listening to that music and all those art forms are on an intellectual journey, whether they think they are or not, and Shakespeare arms you as very few other writers do, for that intellectual journey. I wouldn't Did challenge that. Like, I, I don't refute that. It's so difficult to have a debate when your, your debaters agree with each other. I mean, <laughs> the, the Capulets and the Montagues are the warring houses and they fall in love and then they both die at the end, so I hope that's not where we're heading. But I want to turn to our audience for the last um, five minutes. Do we have questions? Because I think you might want to, to pipe up into our conversation. If you do, you can raise your hand and we'll wing a mic over to you. 
If not, I've got plenty of questions to ask our speakers. There's one at the very front. It's David, in fact. Um, the mic is coming to you, I think. Or do you have a mic already? No, I'm not there. I think the mic is coming to you right now. Um, I wonder whether you consider things like verse form when you were thinking um, about this debate, because I alluded in my introduction about iambic pentameter and the, and the more complicated beats of hip-hop. And, and I also wondered if you thought about wordplay, because some of the greatest wordplay I've heard recently is in hip-hop, and there we have Shakespeare, the master of wordplay. There's been a lot of talk about the cultural impact of these two things, but what about the kind of technical craft of what Shakespeare did mm. and what hip-hop artists do? Mm. Personally, I thought about that a lot. And I reached a conclusion, which I mentioned in my speech, that um, I don't want to talk about the poetic merits because there are too many. That's the, <laughs> that's the beauty of, this, of a debate about art. It's art at the end of the day. You can go away and just have fun with it because it's, it's just beautiful. And yeah, that's why I felt it was important to frame what hip hop represents. I know Howard thought of hip hop as the, um, the recent offering and representative of some other things, but uh, for me, hip-hop, uh, I, I can't even begin a discussion about the poetry of hip-hop or Shakespeare. It's just, as a poet, I'm just going to explode. <laughs> I think Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare would have loved the very things that you're describing, which is why I said um, I had to cut, I had to cut out all my stuff about Shakespeare as one of the greatest rappers there's ever been because the professor wouldn't let me go on. Yeah. Because she was not on my side, because she's prejudiced and against yes, some yeah. reason, academically prejudiced. Yeah. Well, otherwise, I, w I would have said, had I been allotted my reasonable, all the time that George got, <laughs> what George wanted to say, but I would have said Shakespeare was a great rapper and would have loved some of this. Um, my only point is, that's not the Shakespeare I'm a, that's for me, not the greatest Shakespeare. Mm. But I also, as I, as I wrote that, in a way I'm glad I didn't say it, because what George said made me rethink, because I was talking about rap, which is the part of hip hop, the only part of hip hop I get, really, um, and I've always thought about it as comic, really, because of its invective, mm. because of its in, uh, inventiveness around insult. And, um, mm. and I've clearly not listened to enough and probably never will to see what else it can do. But I don't, th I don't think that is antithetical to the Shakespearean spirit, actually. I'm going to try and squeeze in two more questions at the expense of Howard talking. There's one at the front. <laughs> I wondered, Howard, whether you'd considered a career in hip-hop or rap. Um, we have things like, you know, the MOBO and BAFTA award-winning performer Akala's Shakespeare Hip Hop Company. Is that something you'd ever consider getting involved with? I think your knowledge of Shakespeare would be very, very valuable to that audience. Well, I'm prepared to talk about it with you afterwards. I mean, if you think there's, if you think there's a career in it, this time, <laughs> this time I change, yes. Yes, I mean, I look at it and think, yes, that's a way that's, I wish I'd been a little less, I was a very stuffy boy. You'd never guess that now from it. <laughs> But I was a very stuffy boy, and so I would have said no to any of that. Now, if I were a young man now, who's to say? You've just got me 40 years too late. That's... There's a question at the back, just towards the back, brown hair. White shirt, brown hair? White shirt, brown hair. There we go. The mic is just coming to you. One second. Do you think that as hip-hop becomes more commercial, that there's a risk that there may be some cultural dilution of relevance and that the rappers of today could just become the rock stars of the past. You know, the, the rock star that your dad listened to and, 
you know, it could end up meaning, you know, it reaching more, but meaning less. 100 million percent, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I, think, I think the influence of big money on hip hop, uh, without the respect for hip hop, without the custodians who are there to guard it and guide it and say, you know, this is at the end of the day, the documentation of a, a very important story. Um, yeah, that's the way it goes, but some would say that that's, uh, that's what, that's the nature of commercialization. It kind of kills things. Yeah, did Shakespeare sell out? I feel like Merry Wives of Windsor was a bit of a push, wasn't it? I don't know the details of the, of the audiences. I thought that he did pretty well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. One last question from the audience. And there's one at the very back. Let's squeeze it in. Thank you. Um, so you've talked a lot about the, the relevance um, of Shakespeare, but, but you haven't mentioned the relevance of music. Um, so what is the relevance of music, and, and why does uh, only one side of the argument seem to have a backing track? Why does one side of the argument only have what? A backing track. Music in Shakespeare. Music. Well, that's the way the thing's been set up. That's, that's part of the falsity of the whole thing, isn't it? That's, <laughs> the, that's why you can't compare it. <laughs> um, uh, we, we've run out of time. I can see that the questions are coming up, but perhaps you can grab us at the end. I'm going to ask one last final question. Howard, you were on Desert Island Discs back in 2011. What would you say if the BBC changed its Desert Island Discs policy and instead of gifting the castaway you with the complete works of William Shakespeare, they offered you the complete collection of Kanye West albums. Even I would. Who? <laughs> well, George, maybe I can ask you if, if, why aren't we offered the complete works of Kanye West? And, and if there was an offering on Desert Island Discs, what would it be? Um, well, I, I, I made this point earlier. I think sometimes it can be very difficult to see something in its entirety up close. And Shakespeare does benefit from 400 years of hindsight. Uh, and I do think there is enough innovation, enough genius in the hip hop that we have witnessed over the past 50 years that some of it will stand the test of time. Some of it is, um, is, is historically important. Uh, but I uh, also think a, a lot of work needs to be done to continue to um, standardise that understanding of hip-hop. Yeah. Well, I might take the complete works of George the Poet and yeah. Howard Jacobson. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligent Squared Arts and Culture. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events and peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligentsquared.com. This event was produced by Hannah Kay and Yasala Olorunshola in collaboration with Sotheby's in 2022. Editing was by executive producer Rowan Slaney and I'm your host, Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.